you know, it used to be that it was kind of a trendy thing, like, oh, let's talk about sustainability, you know, for the really, you know, tree hugger consumers out there. But now it's just, it's pretty much, no, it's here. If you're not paying attention to it, you're going to be left behind. Remember the melamine in pet food recall? She does. Boy, does she ever. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today someone who gives us some food for thought is Debbie Phillips Donaldson, editor of Pet Food Industry Online and in Print. Debbie fell into the world of pet food manufacturing way back in 2007 when a number of pet food brands wound up adulterated with toxic melamine, killing pets. Since then, she's followed closely pet food trends that maybe you don't think about every day, but your clients are absolutely responding to. Online shopping, gluten-free, raw and organic, human diet trends affecting pet food. Let's get into pet food and what pet food makers are thinking about in 2022. But first, Debbie, what's pet food industry? We are a business-to-business media. Yes, that used to be my gig too. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, so our audience are mainly professionals who work for pet food companies. Got it. Whether full manufacturers where they're making their own food or maybe just, you know, marketers where they're they're in charge of the brand and the formulation and everything, but they may, you know, use a, a, another company to actually make the food. But our content is geared at helping them, you know, make better pet food or treats, do their jobs better, know more about what the consumer is looking for, you know, other market trends. You know, the latest research on nutrition, processing, safety, safety is huge, of course, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So that's our main audience. We do also have, you know, smaller audiences among pet food retailers and even some veterinarians. I know some veterinarians do read our, and not just veterinarians who work for pet food companies because there are sure. quite a few of those, but veterinarians in the practicing veterinarian world. You know, our clients are the companies that make things that go into pet food. So lots of ingredients, the extrusion or or other processing equipment, packaging equipment, packaging materials, lab testing, other services, on and on and on. And so they also read the content too. You know, they're they're definitely part of the audience, secondary part, I would say. So it's kind of like there's a core circle and then Mm -hmm. sort of widening circles of interest outside. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you did mention, it's you know, we mentioned a lot of things in there and safety. And I was like, hey, will we talk about this or not right before Mm -hmm. this? And I mentioned that my big thing in my first couple of years at a veterinary magazine was, boom, the melamine poisoning that happened that came out of adulterated food coming out of pet food factories. It sounds like you came in about the same time. And so I wonder, tell me about your experience with that coming in at that time and how big safety has been in your tenure through since then. Huge. Okay. I started with company with pet food industry in uh, late summer of 2006 and then the melamine recalls happened in you know what around march 2007 and at at the time we had other staff on board who were much you know knew the industry much more than i did and they were telling me you know this is like the biggest thing that's ever you know the biggest and worst thing that's ever happened in pet food oh so the people who were in around you already said oh this is oh yeah oh yeah and then And of course, you know, we knew it just because the media stories exploded and, you know, there were just all kinds of meetings with, uh, with companies and, you know, the Pet Food Institute, which is the leading uh, trade organization for the industry, you know, was, was really 
diving in on it and we were, you know, privy to some of their information, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it was, it was huge. And then it just so happened that our annual conference forum was scheduled for the month after that, April, 2007. And so it was, so it was really the first time the entire industry or a lot of people in the industry were together in one place. And obviously it was pretty much the, almost the only topic of conversation. So yeah, it was huge. And, you know, to me, one of the interesting things and probably most eye-opening things all around was especially eye-opening for consumers. And this was a paradigm shift to me in the pet food world and for pet owners and probably veterinarians too, is that I don't think even the most devoted pet owners had paid a whole lot of attention to what might be in their pet's food or how it might be made. Sure, you know, I mean, I'm sure people, you know, who could afford it might spend a little bit more and they may, you know, some people, of course, would know more. But, you know, I think in general, most people didn't really think about it that much. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, my gosh, there's something in a pet food that could really harm my cat or dog or wait. A lot of the food that was affected came out of one plant, Menu Foods, which has now been absorbed by another company. But they did a lot of what's called private label or or co-packing. Mm-hmm. Of especially of canned foods for a lot of different companies. And so it, that's why it was so widespread was because they had bought this adulterated ingredient, wheat gluten, from a Chinese supplier, and that's what was adulterated. That's where it was coming from. And it had gotten into so many products because they were using it and so many products that they were making for so many companies. That's why the list of brands affected just went on and on and on. And, so, and you know, it was terrible. It sickened and killed so many beloved pets. I mean, it was awful. Yeah. So, yeah, it was huge. And I think that's when, I mean, the humanization had been underway for a while then you know with people treating their pets as family i think it really really ramped up then and the consumer and retailer and and regulator (laughs) focus on pet food is you know really ramped up then and i you know like i said it was a paradigm shift it's changed so many things in how pet food is made and marketed and how pet owners you know think of pet food and interact with pet food companies and all that. And and then it did, you know, all kinds of new regulations came out based on that. So so beyond the sort of the behind the scenes and then maybe the the publicized work that was done to change regulations or change manufacturers, all the things they did to tighten up safety protocols or change mm-hmm. them. That humanization is interesting because I think then this was maybe like the big first pet food health scare where people started thinking about ingredients. And I'm sure there were a lot of companies that immediate maybe immediately or soon after figured out hey, if we talk about our thing is safer, our thing is more natural, how do you think that big health scare wove into that humanizing and of the pet food? It did for uh, quite a few companies. I mean, some companies immediately started becoming very transparent. They, you, you know, and still to this day, you, for example, if you look at a lot code on the bag of or can of pet food you buy, you can go to their website and look it up and it can, they can tell you exactly where it was made. Jeez, and okay. and some companies even have even gone to the, I mean, I haven't kept up with this to be honest, but for a while there, there was this trend of some companies like being able to pinpoint, you know, at least to some extent, like, okay, and the ingredients in this particular bag of dog food, you know, this came from here and this came from here and this came from here. Some companies really did try to use it as a competitive advantage and a marketing advantage. And I'm sure that they that they had some success. I don't know if they've been able to keep up with it because it was probably pretty expensive to keep up with. But I mean, I think that what came to light was 
pet food companies need to be much more transparent. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I wish that they, <laughs> I wish that more companies had taken that to heart and we're still doing it. it it's, the transparency has gotten so much better. I just don't, still don't think it's to the point where it should be or where consumers want it to be. And you mentioned, I don't kind of seeing behind the scenes of the industry. Does it feel like a lot of it is probably the cost of having to maintain that the carefully sourced data and then publicizing that database? Do you think it's cost or does it just complicated? Does it just open you up to problems? What do you think the big problem is why they haven't done more transparency? I think there's probably a cost element to it, I'm sure. Yeah. And definitely a complexity thing. I mean, I know we're going to be getting into the whole pandemic effect on industry, but, (laughs) you know, one of the big problems that the industry is facing, along with every single other industry in the world, pretty much, I think, is supply chain disruptions, including for things like ingredients. And even before the pandemic, that could be an issue just because the pet food world, pet food formulations have become so complex and have brought in so many other new ingredients that never used to be used and you know that there's just so much that goes into that besides obviously the nutritional aspects of it that's the first and most important thing but then you know can you ensure there's a steady supply if you're going to put this new product on the market with just say for example you know bison as the main protein you know can you ensure a steady supply or whatever it is and so i think there's a misperception from some consumers, but I can kind of see where they get it, is that, you know, they're not pronouncing or the ingredients come from. Well, unfortunately, sometimes they have to make a change because they can't get enough. And like I said, that's really ramped up during the pandemic, but it would happen before that just for, I mean, I remember several years ago at Pefu Forum, there was, you know, like the big topic or one of the big topics that some people were talking about was there was a shortage of, you know, poultry meal or something like that because and I don't remember now why there were some things happening in the overall poultry market that were affecting you know all the way down the supply chain but it was I mean that's a key component in a lot of pet food diets and so you know some companies are scrambling to get it or having to pay so much more than they normally would that's just kind of a you know just a small example of how complex it has become to source the ingredients that go into our, the very complex pet food formulations that are out there now. So it's a very long-winded way to answer your question that I do think complexity plays a big deal in you know, why or how companies can share where they get everything. It's interesting because you know when we think of one thing you mentioned with complexity, a lot of different ingredients, but now, of course, one major selling point for a lot of human food and now maybe a growing selling point for some pet food is simplicity. So we mm-hmm. only have four things or five things or seven things inside this. But that also means if the, any of those seven things are weird or hard to get at any point, that really puts your entire recipe at risk. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the so you kind of jump to the next one. That, so the pandemic obviously has created trends outside in the world. You mentioned the problems with the supply chain and then ingredients. Mm -hmm. What other trends right now this year, the past couple years, either because of the pandemic or just because of the changing, the changing trends in pet food, what have they been? What have you seen? Again, starting before the pandemic, but ramping up since then, um, you know, the focus on health and wellness, which everyone has probably been doing more for their, you know, their human families and themselves, but now also their pets. And so, you know, that, like I said, that was a trend, a growing trend well before the pandemic. But I would say 
it's become even more of a focus among um, pet owners and, and thus, you know, pet food companies. So, you know, just functional ingredients are important. Things like superfoods, prebiotics, probiotics um, for immune health mm-hmm. that has a play in therapeutic diets, you know, so I think more more pet owners might be open to the idea of like, oh, my cat or dog needs a special diet because of a special condition. Yeah. But also just things like there's just more scrutiny on the ingredient panel overall. And we could do a whole podcast on that alone. <laughs> on, but, you know, just a real focus on more of a focus on, on health and wellness. And to me, everything kind of falls under one big umbrella. And I'm not sure what that umbrella term should be, but sustainability has become huge. Not just for pet food, you know, but I think in most categories now, too. And, you know, I remember when the pandemic first hit and, you know, I would see some articles of things speculating that like, oh, well, you know, this is going to take a back seat now. And maybe it did for a short right. time. I remember people, that same stuff. Yeah, because yeah. people were just start, you know, people were just focused on like, OK, I just got to get food for my family and my pets. You know, I don't care where it comes from or how it's made or, you know, but. You know, that panic buying that happened at the beginning. But I think, you know, we kind of re- not only, you know, quickly came back into focus, but it's just only continued to grow. I mean, I just saw a survey that Cargill did about, you know, packaged food for humans. They did it uh, last summer and they just released it. And the number of consumers in various countries around the world who say that sustainability claims influence them, it just keeps going up. And so that definitely translates to pet food. And so, you know, and you're seeing it, you know, pet food companies and suppliers have made it a much bigger focus of their business, not only because consumers are demanding it, because also it's just gotten to a point where it's like, okay, we can't stay in business unless we're more sustainable from a lot of different uh, things. So, I mean, it's, I guess, you know, it used to be that it was kind of a trendy thing, like, oh, let's talk about sustainability, you know, for the, for the really, you know, tree hugger consumers out there. But now it's just, it's pretty much, no, it's here. If you're not paying attention to it, you're going to be left behind. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. Now, it's interesting because I think there's a wide spectrum of possibility with the mm-hmm. term sustainability. Yep. Some of it can be real world changing stuff and some of it is just marketing fluff. So I'm curious in the pet food industry, what does sustainable look like? So the packaging, the packaging could be recyclable or compostable. Once you get to the pet food itself, are we talking about where those animals came from? If there's protein, where the food came from, what does sustainable look like? It is not well defined for any. I mean, it's just, it's just like it's just <laughs> okay. like within. It's just like in the other category. It's still one of right. those, you know, kind of 
vague, big, nebulous terms that I think you know different people define differently for themselves. Yeah, it's kind of a, all the above. You know, I mean, for some people, consumers, it may be yeah how the animals are sourced and how they're raised. So there's an anim- definitely an animal welfare welfare component to it. Mm-hmm. There's also the you know like the plant based boom in pet in human food is definitely a huge thing in pet food too. And so that, you know, gets to the like, oh, well, you know, some plants don't take as many resources to grow as some livestock do to raise. I mean, you know, the whole yeah. the whole thing around what is the most least sustainable in terms of ingredients. I mean, it's just I just happened to just write something about this. It's just it's so hard to really figure out who's right you know on that there is yes. it's, it's such a complex thing to track that it's like you read one thing you're like oh yeah that makes sense and then you read from another perspective and it's like that makes sense too so <laughs> it's really hard to get down to what is truly sustainable not sustainable when it comes to different ingredients but you know i mean it's it's definitely something that a lot of consumers and companies are paying attention to i think that's one reason that insect protein is starting to get some traction you know it's just now started to become legal to use in full pet food diets in the u.s and but it's been it's been legal in europe for a while and and it's been in pet treats already but i don't know that consumers are yet responding to it but you know there's a strong sustainability story there and i think that that's that's what's going to be you know, there's always a concern that people have this ick factor when it comes to like sure. insects. But I think that sustainability is something that can help get get past that factor because it's it's they have a really powerful story to tell. It can mean so many different things. The packaging is a big deal, as you mentioned. There's unfortunately the most popular and most efficient and best package from a lot of different standpoints is plastic. Best because it protects the food the best for the longest, and it also you know gives you that marketing pop and wow and you know it's more convenient in most cases you can have like the zip top things you know for your your pet food or your the dog treats or whatever but it's not easily re- recyclable and so there are efforts underway you know to tackle that which i think are going to be interesting to follow there's a an organization called the pet sustainability coalition mm-hmm. and they're they've been doing a pilot program with um, some retailers and then some folks on the the technical side to collect pet food packaging, you know, so you can take it back to the store where you bought it, for example, and turn in your empty dog food bag. And then they're working, you know, to figure like, okay, how can we get through the technology issues to, to recycle those, this? It's big. It's um, sustainability. Like I said, it's here to stay. Is there anything inside of that with, they're trying to push, not plant-based, but art, so artificial meat now is the, oh, the horizon the, for the our men- meat, yeah. yeah, human menus. But that stuff is obviously... It's possible you can go buy it right now, but it's way more expensive. Mm-hmm. Has that entered pet food or is that kind of so far out in the kind of refrigerated stuff? The cost would be too much. I think it's too far out yet, but who knows? Okay. I mean, it's being looked at in pet food too, you know, by the kind of the more the incubator, you know, type uh, organizations that are always trying to look several years out or several, you know, a decade or so out. And then again, that goes to the sustainability but, you know, then again, it's, there's also all kinds of questions about, is that truly sustainable? And is it truly nutritious? I mean, the, the plant-based meat substitutes you can get now, which, by the way, I eat too. You know, I mean, yeah, me I'll too. try them. Yep. But they're not really healthier for you if you think if you look at the ingredient panel and figure out how they're made. It's like, okay, this has, you know, like four times as many ingredients as if I just ate a piece of meat, you know. So, you know, it's just something I think that 
it's the evolution of how we eat and then now how we're feeding our pets based on what's going on in our world, which as we know, is not a positive thing, you know, in a lot of different ways in terms of the, the environment and climate change and all that. So so it's interesting, the, the primary audience for pet food industry are the people working inside the industry, not the customers of that pet food industry. So that would be the pet Correct. owners, the veterinarians, and of course, the pet stores. Mm -hmm. Veterinary hospitals have been kind of in the same boat where, look, some of them wanted to get into the pet store game or the grooming game, and some do. And obviously, there are huge examples like Banfields with, mm -hmm. you know, all the Banfields next to next to pet stores. So that that happens. So there's some cross pollination. But really, veterinarians have kind of stayed out and just sort of some of them have been aggravated, like, oh, people listen to the teenager in the pet store aisle about what food to eat more than they listen to me. And so I, I get all the complaints. Are pet food manufacturers sort of agnostic, like don't care where the food goes? Or have they really been buffeted by changes either from online brick and mortar or the fact that pet store chains have gotten bigger? How do they feel about the market out there for pet food or do they talk about that? Well, most most pet food companies have – that's part of their strategy. The distribution okay. is a big part of their strategy. you know, And that could mean, okay, we want to sell this every single place we can, Amazon, Chewy – you know, the local pet store, Walmart, right. what have you. Um, and that's usually not always, but usually a lower price, you know, type of food. And then there's some who may be the opposite where they say, no, this is a super premium brand and we're going to support the, the independent pet shop industry, the independent pet shop owners, and we're only going to sell to them. And that's actually been going on for a while. The whole, you know, we're going to focus on, because when PetSmart and Petco came in, yeah. they kind of decimated that whole mom and pop <laughs> right. pet shop industry. And one of the ways that the industry overall kind of reacted was, well, we, you know, that they're kind of a, an important part of the industry and we need to do something to help them. And so, you know, that's what pet, some, some manufacturers, including pet food manufacturers, decided it's like, you know, that's going to be the only people or, or they have specific lines that they sell only through the independents. But yeah, I mean, the whole online thing has changed things so much that I think some pet food companies, they've had to stray maybe from their original strategy. And of course, that infuriates people. Some people who set up a product originally mm -hmm. exclusive, you know, it wanders away. Or that's happened with acquisitions. And that's yeah. been a big part of the industry is mergers and acquisitions. You know, some of these smaller, super premium brands that pop up, they eventually get bought up by one of the bigger companies. And then that bigger company may or may not stick to the original strategy. And yeah, that's been a familiar lament over the years of, oh, no, so-and-so bought this company. They're going to take it away from us, you know, from the, right. the independent stores. And I, I do get it. I mean, that's that's how they differentiate. And in that case, if you go to an independent pet store, at least the philosophy is, and I think it's true in most cases, is you're going to find people who do know something about pets and it's something about nutrition they've tried to educate themselves so it's not like asking a teenager at, at a pet smarter petco they train their staff to know some things that so they can properly advise or, or help better better advise pet owners with questions do the pet food manufacturers do they talk openly or often about what happens with where they're distributing the economy of scale. So if you're distributing products to many small mom and pop shops, I mean, some of those shops are really well run and they fight for a good price and other places, you know, they don't really pay that much attention to that. So you get a wide spectrum. When you have fewer and fewer buyers of your pet food in bulk, 
obviously they get smarter and they start asking for better prices and lower prices. And they say, well, we're a bigger and bigger part of the market. Is there an ongoing battle as the people who sell the pet food, especially online, there's only a few places online that sell the bulk of it. Mm -hmm. So then can they command a price that's irritating to the pet food manufacturer? I probably, I don't know that much about it. I do know that there's definitely irritation on the part of pet shop owners at, at the pricing. <laughs> okay. And and again, yeah. it's that whole, you know, even pre-pandemic, the whole on you know, the whole e-commerce space, you know, just really disrupted everything. And, you know, for every category, again, not just pet food. And so that, you know, I think that was just starting to kind of play out or shake out when the pandemic hit. And then, of course, the pandemic just, you know, put it on steroids. So... The independent pet shops who could do so, yes. you know, it had already like figured out a way to also sell online. But also the industry has kind of rallied around them. And, you know, there are organizations now that um, I think there's one called Indie Pet. And I don't know that much about it, so I don't want to misspeak. But I think that sure. the, the idea is that it's a, a resource. It's one place where a lot of different smaller retailers can use for e-commerce or they can use it as a, a turnkey e-commerce platform uh -huh. and so i mean the industry is trying to help out because it's like what i was saying earlier with sustainability if you're not playing in the e-commerce space you're pretty much dead in the water and that like i said and then the pandemic just put that on steroids so it's kind of a must and so you know i i think the pet food manufacturers i don't know that much about the pricing angle of it to be honest but sure. i think that they just have kind of had to just keep riding the wave and reacting you know i do know that I've heard anecdotal complaints over the years of, you know, Am dealing with Amazon, dealing with Chewy, because they're both so big, they can write so many of the rules themselves, I guess. But I think it's just a, con you know, just a constantly changing thing anymore. Want to learn more about the world of pet food these days? Find Debbie at PetFoodIndustry.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.